You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Zuman, Hefe, Jennings, Antonio, Drunken Dak, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conif Allende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Samuel and Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about the English founding of the Jamaica Station, about the rise of the Jamaican Buccaneers, and the foundation of the Brethren of the Coast. Today we're going to discuss two upcoming young captains within the Brethren, influential, dangerous, charismatic, and growing in power, a French buccaneer named Francois Lolonnet, and an English privateer named Henry Morgan. This is episode 104, The Story So Far, Part 5. We know Francois Lolonnet was at the raid on Campeche. There's a story that comes down to us of his ship wrecking off the coast of the Yucatan. He and his men made it to shore, but a Spanish regiment found them and attacked. The buccaneers were outmatched in this fight. The muskets, and... These pirates were more attached to their long-barreled matchlock muskets than any woman. Their muskets were useless. They were too wet to fire. These French pirates were slaughtered, nearly to a man. The captain, Lolonet, survived, but, like almost everything else in his short life, it was brutal. He had to hide among his dead companions. He covered himself in blood and gore to mimic the deadly wounds on his own body. He had to cut pieces off of his dead friends to make himself seem believably deceased, and he lay there, covered in parts of his comrades, baking in the hot sun for hours, waiting for the Spaniards to finish their work and ride away. Take a moment and put yourself in his shoes. Try to imagine the rage and the fear and the hate that an experience like that would engender in you. It would engender it in anyone, even stable, normal, healthy people, and Francois Lolonnet was not stable or healthy. But he did make it back to Tortuga with the aid of some escaped slaves. And when he returned, he found that the prestige in the eyes of the buccaneers of Tortuga, well, it had grown in his case. His miraculous return made him seem immortal. On the other hand, Henry Morgan, well, he was also at Campeche, but he returned to Port Royal safely. He wasted no time, after the festivities were over, petitioning the governor, Lord Windsor, for a letter of mark. Windsor was only the governor of Jamaica for three months, really. Technically, he held the position for two years, but he only stayed on the island long enough to order the attack on Campeche and then toss around commissions like candy. But those commissions, the reason he was handing them out so freely, was to further the English war with Spain. Morgan was only one of many who received a commission from Windsor in the weeks following Campeche. Another was a man named John Morris. Now, Morris had plans to be a privateer admiral himself, and 
He might even have succeeded, but instead he fell in with Henry Morgan. You could think of John Morris sort of as... Aide-de-camp might be the best analogy, but I think of Morris as a film producer to Henry Morgan, the director. He would stick with Morgan for years, and he would become quite rich and powerful in the process. He reinvested his Campeche winnings by buying four barks. Now, barks were small, and these four might have had swivel guns, but they wouldn't have had any big cannon. They were little more than troop and cargo transports. He kept one of the barks for himself and sold the other three off to other privateers, one to Morgan, one to a man named David Martin, and one to a man named Thomas Freeman. These weren't just random sales, though. They were building a fleet. Freeman actually brought in his old partner, named Jacob Frackman, who owned a frigate called Cagway. That was the only ship of any real power in their little fleet, and I should note that the Cagway owned by Jacob Frackman was not THE Cagway. There's a different frigate belonging to a pirate named Robert Searle, but more on him and that other Cagway in a bit. This small, you might call it humble, fleet left Port Royal in November 1663 with somewhere around 400 to maybe 500 men. They headed west and then northwest to round the Yucatan, back into the Bay of Campeche where they'd just raided, and they arrived in early 1664. But they passed by San Francisco de Campeche, down the coast, to a city called Villa Hermosa. They found a secluded cove just down the coast in which they left the Cagway and David Martin's bark, the Charity. All of the pirates crowded aboard the other three barks and made for the city. They took Via Hermosa, quote, without the loss of a man, end quote, and plundered her for days. The Spanish would mount a counterattack, but Henry Morgan, who was the most experienced military man among them, rallied the troops and fought them off. This solidified Henry Morgan as the leader of this group, eventually to be the admiral. After that attempted counterattack, the pirates marched off, left Via Hermosa, and went to go claim their ships, but when they reached the coast, the ships were gone. They'd been taken by the Spanish. So the buccaneers had to steal more than a dozen canoes from one of the local fishing villages and rowed out to a cove where their last two ships were, hopefully, waiting for them. And I wonder how tense that was. How would it feel rowing up to a cove, being unsure if your ships were still there? All you had at this point were canoes, and if your two ships were not there, you would be stuck on the Spanish main for who knows how long. But they were in luck. Cagway and Charity had not been found, and they were there. But that left the pirates with a decision to make. They could all fit on board those two ships to return home. But to do so, they would have to leave their plunder from Via Hermosa behind. Or they could load the booty on board those two ships, but then only about half the pirates would be able to fit on board. The others would have to continue on in canoes, and they wouldn't be able to return home. They would have to find another ship or two. And if they found another ship or two, they would probably find a bit more treasure. That went without saying. So the pirates elected to continue, with half of them in canoes. They set out to round the Yucatan again, headed back into the Caribbean, and to head south. They would have to hug the coast the whole way, due to the canoes, and that voyage would take some time. 
Not only would they be limited by their ore power, but they would also have to stop at night to make camp ashore. So while that's going on, let's look elsewhere. The war with Spain had come to an end shortly after Henry Morgan left Port Royal, but the buccaneers of Tortuga continued attacking Spanish ships. Charles II, the King of England, was coming under a lot of pressure from Madrid, so he sent a Barbadian planter named Thomas Modiford to take up the governor's seat on Jamaica. His job was to put an end to the buccaneering. The king would write, quote, His majesty cannot sufficiently express his dissatisfaction at the daily complaints of violence and depredation, end quote, and that Modiford was, quote, strictly commanded not only to forbid the prosecution of such violence for the future, but to inflict condign punishment upon offenders and to have the entire restitution and satisfaction made to the sufferers, end quote. He had to end the buccaneering, punish the buccaneers, and give back whatever they had taken to the Spanish. His first act of business was to officially recall all privateer commissions issued by his predecessor. And he did so, but he also got the word out all around the Caribbean that any English buccaneers who might accidentally continue raiding without a commission would be treated as pirates. Now, I say all around the Caribbean, but those were only two places where buccaneers were known to congregate, Tortuga and the like. He didn't get them out to the coast of South America, where Morgan and his friends were. But this hit one Port Royal privateer particularly hard, Robert Searle, captain of that other, more famous Cagway. When the orders came down from Modiford, Robert Searle had three ships in the harbor of Port Royal, his own Cagway, and two Spanish prizes that were filled with plunder. All three ships were seized, and letters were sent to Havana informing them of the imminent return of their ships and goods. Modiford wrote, quote, All persons making further attempts of violence upon the Spaniards should be looked upon as pirates and rebels, and that Captain Searle's commission be taken from him and his rudder and sails taken ashore for security. End quote. Those Spanish prizes were sent back to Havana and the ship, the Cagway, sat in Cagway Bay for some time. Searle, though, was out a significant fortune, but his ship was restored to him a few months later. That was when the Second Anglo-Dutch War broke out, and he would actually sail alongside Commander Edward Morgan on the attack on St. Eustatius. Searle would make it back, so would his ship, the Cagway, but Edward Morgan did not. We talked about that at the end of last week's episode. But about this time, Henry Morgan and his fleet were still rowing. They were around Belize or Honduras, most likely about now. So let's look elsewhere. What about Francois Lolonet? Well, he was back on the prowl after his miraculous return to Tortuga with four ships and 400 men under his command. His first notable raid with his new fleet was to sack a town on the north shore of Cuba, in which he killed every guardsman and man-at-arms they found. In Havana, the governor heard that Lolonet was attacking his island, but he didn't believe it. He had reports that Francois Lolonet was dead, so he only sent a single ship to deal with whatever nameless marauders were supposedly attacking, but Francois Lolonet knew they would be coming. He had scouts out, and he caught wind of the Coast Guard, and he set out to meet them. 
but the way he did so, and this is obviously a terrible tragedy for all of the people that are about to die, but this is so cool. The buccaneers, the French buccaneers that spoke fluent Spanish, took the clothes and the armor from the slain guardsmen there in town. Then they marched out as though they were a column of Spanish guards to meet the coast guard that were disembarking from their ship. They met the captain there and told him a great tale. No, it wasn't Lolonay that attacked just some rovers. Now, we, of course, had the pirates at bay. It was a fierce firefight, but we held our own. Once you coast guards showed up, though, the pirates showed their true colors and scurried back to their ships to flee home to Tortuga. And the captain... The Spanish captain bought it. This was, of course, a cause for celebration. So the guardsmen broke out a few casks of wine. The pirates were chased off thanks to you brave soldiers, so why not have a toast or two or three? You've earned it after all. And when the actual Spanish soldiers were well and truly drunk, well, imagine yourself sitting on a Cuban beach enjoying a jug of wine with a nice fire under the stars. The waves are lapping upon the shore, and maybe someone's plucking a guitar somewhere in camp. You're feeling a little tipsy, very relaxed, and probably starting to doze. Then you hear a curse, and your eyes dart open, and all of a sudden you realize that you're surrounded by bearded men with sinister eyes glowing in the firelight. Lolo men came down from the tree line, while the men were busy drinking, surrounded the Spanish soldiers and killed them all. This wasn't a battle, this was mass murder. A line of pirates would fire a volley into the Spanish and then step back while another unit stepped up to fire. Eventually, though, they would have to pull their swords and chop into the ever-shrinking circle of living Spaniards. When the Spanish were all dead, the buccaneers took boats out to their ship. There were a few sailors on board who knew that something had happened ashore, but there weren't enough to repel the buccaneers. They surrendered, which was the smart move, but Lolone didn't want their surrender. He killed all of them as well. Except for the captain. The captain he let live, but he sent him with a message back to Havana. That message read, quote, I shall never henceforward give quarter to any Spaniard whatsoever. End quote. And he would be true to his word, too. He never did. But remember his experience on that beach on the coast of the Yucatan, waiting for Spanish soldiers to finish killing all his friends, praying that they wouldn't realize he was still alive while covered in the blood and the guts of his closest allies. You can understand, maybe, why he would make such a declaration. But what was Henry Morgan up to? Finally, he made landfall at the Mosquito Coast, on the coast of modern-day Nicaragua, where he met up with the Mosquito people, as well as the Dutch pirates who called that coastline home. The older Mosquito certainly would have remembered the Englishmen of the Providence Company about two or three decades before, but there's no record of this meeting between Morgan and the Mosquito, but it appears to have been the dawn of an alliance, the Anglo-Mosquito Alliance, that would last for decades to come. The result of this initial meeting is that the Mosquito agreed to guide Morgan and his men inland, but they sent more than guides, they sent an additional 400 soldiers with them. That doubled the number of soldiers under Morgan's command, 
which was a good thing, too. See, Nicaragua was a difficult journey for the Europeans here. Mostly, this part of Nicaragua is either lowland swamp or mountains. There's a reason that the Spanish didn't want anything to do with it. It's dense rainforest, difficult to traverse, and it's filled with living things. The most dangerous snakes in the Western Hemisphere live there on the coast of Nicaragua, both the fur de lance and the lance head pit vipers. There are also big cats roaming around, as well as tarantulas as big as house cats. Now this made for a difficult march through the brush, but soon enough they made it to the San Juan River. But once they were on the river, the pirates were in far more danger than they had faced from the most deadly pit vipers on the planet and big cats and big spiders. The San Juan River is home to Cayman, who are very much like alligators, although they share much in common with the crocodile. But not to worry, there were plenty of alligators and crocodiles on the river as well. The banks of the San Juan were often lined with dozens, even hundreds of reptiles that could grow up to 20 feet long, with hungry mouths that were full of very sharp teeth. Now, giant herds of caiman, crocodiles, and alligators might seem like the worst threat one could imagine on the river. But then, there were the sharks. The bull shark has been classified as the most dangerous species of shark to human beings. Now, tiger sharks and great white sharks are bigger, but bull sharks have the unique ability to tolerate fresh water and they migrate from the Caribbean down to a lake, which we'll visit in a moment, through the San Juan River. Imagine a pack of bull sharks crowding the relatively shallow waters under your canoe. Imagine someone in your canoe foolishly hits a shark with his oar. Bull sharks are strong. They're called the bull shark because of their strong physique. They're known to be aggressive as well, and they are easily agitated. One of them could tip a canoe full of pirates over in seconds, and a pack could tear every pirate on board to pieces in under a minute. And they did. Exact numbers are hard to find, but it looks very much like more pirates died to bull sharks on this voyage than to Spanish bullets. But the survivors finally made their way upriver to reach Lake Nicaragua, which was, I should note, also full of bull sharks. But more important than that was the city that laid on Lake Nicaragua, Grenada. Grenada is the oldest European-founded city in the Americas. Not only that, at the time, it was among the most beautiful. It was designed to mimic the unique southern Iberian, almost Islamic architecture. Contemporary accounts describe an idyllic stone city that overlooked a clear blue lake. There were hanging gardens and terraces of greens and purples and blues. The lake was filled with pleasure boats and yachts. It was the sort of city that just screamed money. It was one of the richest cities in the Western Hemisphere. It ranked up there with what would become Mexico City and Havana. Grenada, though, was completely unprepared for an attack of any real strength. They did occasionally repel the odd mosquito raid, but the officer of Grenada were not the hardened veterans that one would find in Cartagena. They were fat, 
landed aristocrats who joined the army more for the social benefits. The pirate and mosquito force swept into the city and swept through in a day. Now, pirate raids were always savage affairs, but in this case, before Morgan was able to get the pirates under control, they went from home to home, robbing and drinking and assaulting the women. Morgan was inexperienced. This was his first solo command. He probably knew how men would behave, but he didn't have the rules or the punishments laid out. So it took him time to get the men under control. But they weren't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was the mosquito. Now, it's hard to know how much of this is based in fact, and how much of it is just based in the old stereotype of the savage Indian. We don't have Spanish records of this, but we do have Dutch and English records of this. Now, the mosquito had very good reason to hate the Spanish, and much like Francois Lolonet, they were known not to take Spanish prisoners. Morgan and the privateers, though, did take prisoners. They knew that murdering women and children didn't look good back home, so they rounded up the people of Grenada and the cathedral while they ransacked the town but they did occasionally have to stop the mosquito from murdering entire families, if we can believe the English and Dutch records. All the while, though, the pirates captured gold and pearls and gemstones and a lot of silver. Silver plate, silver coin, raw silver ore, literally tons of silver they carried away. But the mosquito didn't want silver or gold or pearls, they wanted to kill the people that the English buccaneers had rounded up in the church. They thought that Morgan was here to rule Grenada, that he would bring in his English allies to the city, and he would allow the Mosquito to return to their own lands, and they could retake Nicaragua. But that wasn't the plan. The pirates were going to leave, and the Mosquito were going to have to go back to their homes filled with snakes and spiders and giant cats. Things grew contentious there in Grenada, but Morgan used this opportunity to arm the Mosquito, which would aid them in their war on the Spanish, and he cut a deal with them. After they were through ransacking the city and collecting a few ransoms, they captured a few ships that could sail down the San Juan and eventually back to Jamaica, and returned to the Mosquito Coast. When they were there, Morgan chose 200 pirates that would be left there at Bluefields to treat with the Mosquito, and then he took 200 chosen Mosquito with him. It was similar to a hostage transfer, or more accurately, it was sort of like a marriage alliance where 200 people were traded. The Mosquito knew that while there were 200 English buccaneers in their midst, the English in Jamaica, namely Henry Morgan, would not betray them. Those 200 who were sent with Morgan would be able to keep an eye on him as well as to meet the governor and to finalize and formalize their alliance with England. It was a good deal, and it was what set the Anglo-Mosquito alliance in stone. But when the troops returned to Port Royal, well, they expected to be greeted as returning heroes. They knew they would be wealthy and very popular with the ladies and the rum merchants, but... That wasn't exactly the case. Morgan had been out on this raid a long time. Remember, he left in late 1663 and arrived at Villa Hermosa in 1664. And when he returned to Port Royal, 
It was early 1666. They had attacked Grenada almost a year after Governor Modiford recalled all of the privateer commissions. The war with Spain was long over, and the war with the Dutch, well, it wasn't going well. In fact, it was going so poorly that the tide had turned against the Dutch buccaneers. David Martin, one of the captains who had sailed with Morgan, a Dutchman, didn't even go to Port Royal. He realized that the climate might turn against him, and he was actually chased off by English ships before he returned to Tortuga. Now, it was right here that Morgan would have learned about the death of his uncle, Edward Morgan, but at the time, he was probably a bit more worried about the very real possibility of arrest, about potentially being shipped back to London. Now, he talked his way out of that, and honestly, his name and his sudden, substantial fortune had a lot to do with it. There was the money that he brought back to Port Royal, much of which went into the coffers of the governor, but even more than that, now that Edward Morgan was dead, Henry Morgan was in charge of the Morgan household. Edward's sons were still quite young, and his daughter was a bit older but unmarried. So Henry Morgan married his cousin, Elizabeth and he bought a sugar plantation on which his new wife and his two other cousins could live. And this is actually a pattern that we'll see amongst a lot of these returning buccaneers. I mean, a lot of the regular crewmen drank and gambled their money away. They bought the company of women, but many of the officers among them invested their earnings in what can prove to be a real life on Jamaica. And that... That was actually part of Governor Modiford's plan. Not only his plan, but the reason he was chosen to lead the Jamaica colony. When he came over from Barbados, he didn't just bring orders, he brought 700 planters with him. These were planters who were intended to settle Jamaica, as in to settle the island down. They brought with them seeds and equipment and slaves, of course, but they also brought with them women, respectable women, which was something that Jamaica had not seen since the English invasion in 1655, and that included many daughters of a marriageable age. And his plan sort of worked. Three of the pirate captains who sailed off to capture Grenada with Henry Morgan would buy and establish sugar plantations and get married and have kids. The one who didn't was the Dutchman, who didn't return to Port Royal, Two of them will wind up taking seats on Jamaica's governing council, and all of them, after their privateering commissions were revoked, became officers in the Jamaican Guard. Morris and Morgan became the commanders of the two forts that were being rebuilt to guard Port Royal. And for a little while, English privateering did settle down. Port Royal became a lot less welcoming to buccaneers, and most of them left for Tortuga. The governor would write in 1668... There are but three privateers out, one Captain Diego, and Yalas, and Martin, end quote. Now that was not the case, but it wasn't super far from the truth. It was close enough that the governor could get away with a little bit of fibbing. Captain Diego was Diego the Mulatto, who was a Spanish pirate with a French commission. Martin was David Martin, who accompanied Morgan to Grenada, and Yalas was an alias for a French buccaneer named Gel Leca. You'll notice two things from that list of names. First, they are Spanish, Dutch, and French. 
notably not English, because of course no good Englishman would go out raiding, not after I did what I said I would do, my liege. But second, the most famous name aside from Henry Morgan from this era, Francois Lolonnais, was not included. After his raid on Cuba, Francois Lolonnais would return to Tortuga with his prizes, including that Spanish Coast Guard ship, which he would sell to one of his closest allies, another Tortugan pirate named Roque Brasiliano. His name wasn't on that list, but it should have been. Roque the Brazilian had been pirating around for a long time now. He'd been at Campeche with Mansvelt, but after his commission was revoked, he continued to pirate and was arrested in Port Royal. His followers launched a daring raid into Fort Charles to break the Brazilian free. They smuggled him to a ship off the coast and got him home to Tortuga. The leader of that swashbuckling escape was his first mate, Gel Lacar. Upon his return to Tortuga, he bought that ship from Francois Lolonnais and gave his old ship to Gel Lacar, his first mate. They became something of a triumvirate there in Tortuga. Lolonnais, Roque the Brazilian, and Gel Lacar. However, Gel Lacar got his start sailing under the first admiral of the Brethren of the Coast, Edward Mansvelt. In 1666, around the time that Morgan was sacking Grenada, Edward Mansvelt and Gel Lacar and a host of other buccaneers, basically the rest of the Brethren of the Coast, everyone who wasn't English at least, they sailed for the Spanish island of Providencia, just off the Mosquito Coast. They probably didn't know how close they were to Morgan and their allies in Nicaragua, but they were very nearby. And their plan wasn't really the worst. Providence Island could have become a marauder's paradise, a true pirate nation, and that was their goal. It was close to Port Royal and closer to the Allies in Nicaragua. It was well-placed to raid the Spanish. So Mansvelt took the island and manned the fort. They guarded against the initial Spanish counterattack, and Mansvelt got the word out to Port Royal and Tortuga and Nicaragua that he needed reinforcements. And he might have received them, had his timing been anything but terrible. When he finally got the word out, well, in Port Royal, all of the buccaneers had had their commissions revoked. They weren't allowed to sail. Men like Searle had had their ships taken from them. There weren't any buccaneers left there. In Tortuga, well, there were three Tortugan buccaneers, the Triumvirate, and Gel Lacar was there at Providence Island. Roque Brasiliano was currently at Campeche, and Francois Lolonnais was at Maracaibo, in modern-day Venezuela. Now, Lolonnais' raid on Maracaibo is famous. He spent two months there raping and pillaging and burning and murdering, and, what he's most famous for, his egregious acts of torture. There is a source, which we're going to talk about next time, that goes into great detail about the torture Francois Lolonnais meted out at Maracaibo. It goes into almost fetishistic detail of the whipping and the burning and the flaying at the rack and, of course, the wolding. Imagine a length of rope wrapped around your forehead and tied in two places to a stiff metal rod behind your head. And then imagine somebody twists that stiff metal rod. The rope grows tight around your forehead and then imagine somebody twists that rod again, and again, and again. 
according to that source, for Francois Lavonnet, the wolding would only end when the victim's eyes popped from their skull. So when Mansvelt realized that help was not coming, he sent the young and bright captain, Gilles Lacas, out to gather reinforcements. But in truth, he sent Gilles Lacas out with as many men as he could, sending them away from a dying cause. He knew that he couldn't hold the island, but he refused to sail away and give it up. In the end, the Spanish retook Providence Island and killed all the buccaneers left there. Meanwhile, Henry Morgan rebuilt Fort Charles and enjoyed his life as a married man. But Francois Lolonnais, after Maracaibo and all of the torture and suffering he inflicted there, he headed west, and exactly what happened to him is up for debate. Well, they say that he sailed all the way up to the northern tip of modern-day Nicaragua, to Cabo Gracias a Dios, but what we know is that his ship was found on the Darien coast of Panama, that is, the northeast coast of Panama. Let's talk for a moment about cannibalism. There were peoples that practiced ritualistic cannibalism all across the world, all throughout history, and there are well-documented instances of cannibalistic societies in the Americas, but the trustworthy instances of that are rare. See, Queen Isabella forbade the enslavement of indigenous people in the New World, unless, there's this one caveat, those people practiced cannibalism. If they were even ritualistic cannibals, they could be enslaved by the Spanish conquistadors. So wouldn't you know it, all of a sudden there were cannibalistic savages all over the New World. You couldn't swing a cat without hitting some guy eating another guy. This was of course not true and has taken centuries to fix the image of cannibalistic natives in the Caribbean. But the story of Francois Lolonnais, after he left Maracaibo, goes something like this. He was a violent, torturous madman who enjoyed flaying people on the rack and burning them alive, and of course the wolding. When his ship wrecked off the coast of Darien, he was attacked by a group of Spaniards, but most of the men were able to get away. Francois and a few of his compatriots, though, stumbled into a Guna village. Now the Guna, or the Kuna, were probably not cannibals, ritualistically or otherwise, ever in their history but were told that when Lolone stumbled into their camp, he tried to overawe them and overpower them, and he failed. And for his sins, the Kuna cut pieces off of him, cooked those slices of meat, and ate them in front of Lolone's own eyes. But they cauterized the wounds so that he wouldn't bleed to death and would stay alive to watch many, many courses. A person who was not there, and would actually later get sued by Henry Morgan for slander, so take all this with a grain of salt, wrote that the Guna, quote, tore him in pieces alive, throwing his body limb by limb into the fire and his ashes into the air, to the intent no trace nor memory might remain of such an infamous, inhuman creature, end quote. Now, most of that is probably not true. More than likely, Francois Lolonnais was killed by the Spanish on a beach in Panama. But that story is, well, it's kind of poetic justice, isn't it? And it makes for a satisfying, 
may be a little fun but deeply troubling tale of a pirate getting his just desserts. But Henry Morgan was faring much better than Francois Lolonnais, as was Jamaica in general. Most of the buccaneers that were still buccaneering were off on the main, Nicaragua or Panama, or they were in Tortuga. The planters on Jamaica had established sugar plantations all over the island, and they had built a slave market that would soon become the busiest slave market in the world. On Jamaica, people were getting married, they were starting families, and they were growing wealth, wealth that would last for generations. We still feel its effects today. Aside from the slaves on Jamaica, and of course the Taino living inland, things were looking up for the Jamaican people. But there was a storm brewing. On the north coast of the island, several ships filled with Spanish soldiers and a lot of guns made landfall under cover of darkness. Those soldiers sneaked inland, toward the maroon camps in the mountains with whom they had an alliance. They armed the maroons there, and they began planning. Throughout late 1666 and early 1667, the planters on Jamaica were plagued by a rash of guerrilla attacks that emanated from those encampments deep in the mountains. Morgan, who was in charge of the Jamaican guard at the time, bolstered their numbers. He was unable to counter the guerrilla tactics, but he brought in everyone from the wilderness to make them less effective. But then they found the real threat, not coming from inland, but out at sea. Word started coming in to Port Royal that the Windward Fleet itself was gathering at Cartagena, and word had it they were aimed at Jamaica. The Windward Fleet, for anyone unfamiliar, is the most powerful Spanish fleet in the New World. It is the fleet that travels from port to port with the Spanish treasure galleons. But when it gathered for an act of war, it had a destructive power that no one in the Americas could stand against. Now, Charles II still didn't want his governors granting commissions anywhere, most especially, though, in Jamaica. But Thomas Modiford saw the Spanish sharks circling, and he consulted his advisors. Namely, that meant John Morris and Henry Morgan. Their suggestion, perhaps to be expected, was to hand out letters of mark. According to a number of sources, though, Modiford didn't want to do this. He had direct orders from the king telling him not to do that. And there are letters in the royal archives of him begging the king to send more ships to Jamaica or else he would lose the island. But the king didn't want to upset the king of Spain. He didn't want to show force, so Modiford was forced to go against the king's wishes. He took action. When word came in that there was a unit of warships even closer than the Windward Fleet, right off the north coast of Jamaica, Modiford announced that he would once again grant privateer commissions. Morgan got his immediately, as did Morris, and Morgan had the power given to him to hand out letters of mark himself. He licensed all of his top men, but then he sent out a call to arms all across the West Indies. This is, as far as we know, the first official use of the term, but Morgan called for all members of the Brethren of the Coast to join Admiral Henry Morgan in a war against Spain. Nearly everyone we have talked about today, John Morris, David Martin, Thomas Freeman, Jacob Frackman, Gel Lacal, Roque Brasiliano, everyone who was still alive sailed in from the wilderness. 
to arrive on a Jamaican beach and receive a commission to sail under Admiral Henry Morgan. Next time, the buccaneers of Port Royal and Tortuga rally under the Admiral of the Brethren of the Coast to make war on Spain. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, everybody who has recommended this show, and to all of our patrons on Patreon. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. And a few notes to our Patreon supporters. First of all, many thanks to those of you who have signed up recently, and there have been a number of you. In addition to our new Commodores and our new Quartermaster, I'd like to thank our new patrons Alexandra, Bob, Chris, Mark, Lucas, and Tyler. Tyler's from the Minds of Madness podcast, and he was blowing up Twitter for me the other day, and the Minds of Madness sounds like a really interesting true crime show, which all of you should check out. And a few notes about our Patreon rewards system. First of all, I've enabled a personal RSS feed for all of our Patreon supporters. If you are signed up on Patreon, you can find the RSS link in the top right-hand corner of the Pirate History Podcast Patreon page. You can use that link, which is your personal RSS feed, in any podcast player you choose. I'll be uploading all of our older episodes, and then I will give early access to all of our regular weekly episodes to our Patreon supporters, And you will also have access to our Patreon-only episodes, which I've got a number lined up. As for the other rewards, those are back on track as well. Everybody who should have received a Pirate History podcast map should already have one or should receive one in the next week or so. The Queen Anne's Revenge in a Bottle, I found a good supplier for those, so all of our Commodores will be receiving them shortly. As for the t-shirts, well, as it turns out... Artists can be a difficult people. Brilliant, oftentimes, but difficult, and we did have some difficulties with the art on our original designs. However, we've got a new artist lined up who has mocked up four or five beautiful designs. The first one is ready to go, and we're beginning production by the end of the week, so we're going to get those shirts shipped out to everybody who should have one as soon as possible. And I'm sorry about the delay. I will need to ask everybody who should be expecting a shirt about the size that they would like. I'll be sending you a private message via Patreon, so keep your eyes out for it. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with me on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Done.
Tonight.